Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 5. And chapter 5 is the text upon which the teaching and preaching this morning is based. Uh, Today we will be looking at the hope for the world. What we're going to see in sort of a shadow, sketchy way is what God's plan for the entire cosmos, universe, world, and people will eventually be. And so it's going to be a fascinating chapter for us to journey through together. David finally becomes king over all Israel. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, We are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishema, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, All the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, 
for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray today that the Spirit of God would help us understand this text in ways that bring about a desire in our heart to love you, to obey you, to serve you, to get out of ourselves and to give to others, and to recognize the riches we have in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would empower the one who preaches and would also enable the one who hears to perceive what is being said, but also to bring about transformation in the depths of our being. And this we pray to your glory and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Who or what do you hope in? Where does your hope for all of life rest? We use the language of hope often. We consistently speak in that language. I hope my company does well. I hope he isn't mad at me. I hope God really does hear and answer prayers. I sure hope it rains tomorrow or it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope this sickness isn't something serious. If you are a human being and have a pulse, you hope. You attach your security, your sense of peace and rest to something or someone every single day. The question is not whether you hope or not, but what holds your hope? What do you fasten your hope upon? You and I are on a constant quest of hope or for hope. We all want a reason to get up in the morning and a motivation to continue. And here are some things we all need to know about hope. First, your hope is in something. You could argue that the life of a human being is energized or propelled by whatever it hopes in. For the little uh, momentary hope of the young child for food and a toy to the profound hope of a young adult for meaning and purpose, we all hope. We all place our hope in someone or something. And we ask that person or that thing to deliver something to us. You're always reaching out for hope. You're always preaching to yourself the validity of what you reach out for. What are you placing your hope in right now? Second thing I want to say about hope is what you place your hope in sets the direction of your life. 
Whether you know it or not, your pathway, your life pathway is directed by hope. Whether it's hope in a philosophy, a reason, a person, a dream, a location, or whatever, your life will be shaped and contoured by what you place your hope in. Your hope shapes the way you live. Your hope causes you to make decisions that you make. A lack of hope causes one to feel stuck and demotivated. Confident hope makes you decisive and courageous. Wobbly hope makes you timid and indecisive. Hope is just not something you do with your brain. You always live your hope in some kind of way. Hope always includes an expectation and an object. I'm hoping for something and hoping that someone or something will deliver for me. Hope to be hope also has to fix what is broken. Hope that doesn't address our needs isn't very hopeful. You place your hope in a mechanic only if he has the ability to fix what is broken with your car. Most of our hopes disappoint us. We all do it. We place our hope in things in this fallen world that simply can't deliver. Now, this is going to be shocking to some of you. Your spouse cannot make you happy. Your spouse cannot deliver that for you. Your spouse cannot make you happy. Your job won't make you content. Your possessions will never satisfy the desires of your heart. Your physical health will never give you inner peace. Your friends can't give you meaning and purpose. When our hopes disappoint us, it's a sign that we put our hope in the wrong things. There are only two places to look for hope. The biblical theology of hope is really quite simple. There are only two places to put your hope. You rest your hope in the life of the hands of the Creator, or you look to creation for hope. Hope in God is sure hope. And that's what today's text about is about. When you hope in the Lord, you not only hope in the one who created and controls the universe, who is sovereign over it, but also in the one who is glorious and plentiful in grace and abounding in love. Now that's hope that is well-placed and will never disappoint us. But we battle daily about where our hopes rest. Here's the radical truth of the gospel. Hope is not a situation. It's not a location. It's not a possession. It's not an experience. Hope is more than insight or more than an aha moment. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus. And he comes to you and makes a commitment of hope. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now there's, that is hope. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus. And this story in First Samuel, or excuse me, Second Samuel, chapter five, is sort of a shadowy, sketchy picture of what we should be hoping in, where our hopes, as a person, should rest. Whatever you're hoping for, whatever you hope, turns out in any way. And so we pick up the text today in chapter five, and David has already been anointed king in the south by the men of Judah, and this. Judean act gave him at least some claim of legitimacy uh, in the north. However, the carefully written narrative of chapters 2 through 4 concerned the moves required to gain the north for David. Saul, 
Jonathan, Abner, and Ishbosheth have all been eliminated as rivals to the throne. They've been struck down, and yet none has been struck down by David. David is totally innocent of the blood of all of these men. The northern leaders now have come to terms with the fact they have no leadership. And they have come to terms with the fact that David is the guy. So the northern leaders need a leader. They have no candidate, and so they come to David. The tribes of Israel, the old Saul party, came to David at a place called Hebron. Abner had promised to David that all of Israel would eventually enter into a covenant with him and would come to David. But Abner died too soon by some estimations. And without Abner, the northerners do not come with strong bargaining power. They come almost as supplicants, making no condition as Abner might have done, almost begging David to take their uh, crown. They make two arguments when they come to David to persuade David to be the king. First, David and the northern elders belong to each other in covenantal solidarity. There's beauty in the words, we are flesh and our bone, we are a bone and flesh together with you. We are connected to you. There's a, a covenantal connection between us as people. And so they're playing on the relational aspect of God's work in the world. They're saying, just like we say to one another, we are the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we are the body. We're all connected to one another. We're all organically uh, inhabited by the same Holy Spirit. We all need each other. We all are encouraged by each other, built up by each other, needing each other. And so they bring to the table a theme that has been an ever-present theme Throughout Scripture, there is a connectedness between us. Therefore, we want you to be king. We know who you are. We know that in reality, it was not Saul who was leading and uh, taking care of the kingdom, but rather it was you who acted kingly because you were the one who led out and led in. And so the formula is not really biology, but it recognizes that the two parties have stood together in strength, that would be bone, and in weakness, that would be flesh. And so they give formal certification to a long-standing relationship. We use that terminology when we speak of a husband and wife uh, being uh, brought together into a covenantal solidarity in terms of a relationship. Second, even while Saul was king, they tell him, it was you. The Hebrew is emphatic. It was you. You, it was you, who in fact did the things a king is supposed to do. It was you, David, who led out and led in. That is a description of what a true king is to be. Uh, while the narrative of 1 Samuel emphasized the tension between Saul and David, it also made the case that David was Saul's most formidable, feared, and effective soldier. Even the Philistines knew David was Saul's best man. And on the basis of these two arguments, the tribes of Israel make their plea. You shall be shepherd and you shall be prince over Israel. The statement legitimating David in the mouth of all Israel 
is an alleged quote from Yahweh, that is, the North does not make its own appeal to David, but claims to be enacting the will and intention of Yahweh. And so David is called the shepherd of Israel. You remember he started out when we first meet him in the text as a shepherd boy taking care of a flock. Now you've got to understand something about shepherding during this time in the ancient Near East. I mean, I've ridden all over Ireland, and uh, there are more sheep than there are people. They're, they're everywhere. And uh, there's tons of them. And uh, I don't see any shepherds out there with them. They're just usually in a fenced area, and they're doing whatever the heck they want to do. But back in this day, the shepherd was much more proactive. He took on that sh a sheep as his flock, and he led them and guided them to pasture. He oversaw the fact that they were well-fed and protected from predators and that they were uh, nurtured and taken care of. And, and sheep aren't the brightest things in the world. They're not really smart creatures. They tend to um, run to ruin and their own harm if not carefully taken care of. And so that was the shepherd's job. Now I want you to notice something about it. Israel needed leadership. Leadership was so significant and important for the nation at this time and at all times. The church needs leadership, but it is a certain kind of leadership. The leadership in a church is vastly different than leadership in the culture. You can be a business leader. You can be a political leader. You can be a, a leader of men. You can be a leader of woman, women. Uh, there are lots of different ways you can be a leader, but in the church, leadership means shepherding. It means caring about people. It means having a passion to provide for, to feed the people, to lead the people, to guard the people, to protect the people. That's the heart of a leader. He is a servant. Jesus said, I did not come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give my life uh, a ransom for many. I didn't come for people to serve me. That's not what bi biblical leadership is not about that. It's not about you looking for people to serve you. It's about you looking for people to serve. And that's what humbles a leader. That's what we recognize as a leader. That's what qualifies. You can be confident. You can have swagger. You can be bright. You can be a theological giant. You can possess a lot of qualities that are admirable that we all look at and like and admire. But if you don't have a servant's heart, forget about it in the church. Leadership is service. And that means getting down and dirty with the muck and mire of life and people's lives. Sometimes people tell me they want to be an elder and I laugh inside and want to say, you have no idea. You have no idea what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're desiring. And so David, in his kingship, why is the emphasis here upon David being a prince and not a king? Because I think at this point, the writer of Samuel, <coughs> excuse me, was trying to emphasize that the king is Yahweh and that David is the prince. He's sort of like the son 
of the king, though he's not ontologically the son, but a, a role like the son of the king. And what David points to in every moment of his shepherding of his kingship is the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews tells us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're going to see over and over as we read this text, this might be the best day in David's life, but we will see as he continues to grow as king over Israel, he will become harder and harder and harder and harder. He doesn't succeed that well. Now why does the Bible do that? Why does the Bible expose warts and all? Why does the Bible show us the sinfulness of our leaders? Because the Bible's very careful to support the fundamental message of the Bible. And the fundamental message of the Bible is not what you do. The fundamental message of the Bible is what Christ has done for you. That is the good news. That is the gospel. David needed Jesus just like we need Jesus. We're not perfect, but he's pointing to the one who is. He's pointing to the one who will righteously rule as Lord and King over the universe when he comes back. And so what we're saying here in nascent terms are what the world is headed to and going to happen. One day, there will be a king who will rule over this world. This world will be cleansed, it'll be washed, it'll be purified, and then the people of God and Jesus himself will descend upon the new earth and the new heavens, and he will rule forever. David is a picture in which we can begin to see the hope forming. There's so much here. There's three weeks here. I don't know why I'm trying to do it in one, because I'm hard-headed, that's why, uh, which tells you I need Jesus, so pray for me. But it's, it's very powerful. What is leadership? The term shepherd is a, a conventional metaphor in the ancient world for a king. The responsibility of the king, the king, the king, is not to rule, is not to have his every wish or desire granted, is not to dominate with power, but rather to be a shepherd. And that is what we have par excellence in the Lord Jesus himself. And so the metaphor of him being a shepherd carries the freight in this particular passage. It is Yahweh's overriding intention in the narrative that the shepherd boy should become the shepherd of all Israel. The shepherd sheep metaphor of David suggests a variety of uses in the metaphor related to the rest of the Bible. For example, in Psalm 23, the use of the figure in Ezekiel 34, the primary requirement of a good shepherd is to remember that the shepherd exists for the sake of the sheep and their well-being. A bad shepherd, by contrast, is one who acts as though the sheep exist for the well-being and enhancement and profit of the shepherd. So David is being told, even when Nathan the prophet confronts David, we'll see that later in chapter 12 of this book, where he confronts David, what does he use? He uses a shepherd sheep metaphor to speak to David about his own sin. And so here we're seeing something huge in the life of Israel. It's also huge in the life of this church. We need leadership. It was the calling of Jesus and the embodiment in Jesus who is the good shepherd whose death is interpreted as a complete sacrifice for the shepherd for the sheep the good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep 
This metaphor is pushed to its limits that never was approached by David. David was also to be the prince, and that's huge. As we continue with point one, the northern elders entered into covenant with David. And to say that it was a covenant where no obligations existed would not be true. Uh, there was a limitation uh, is so that David would not become a monster king. Uh, David is anointed king, and verses 4 through 5 suggest a chronology of 40 years uh, for David's entire reign. But when we get to the next section where we talk about the land, it gets even more interesting. So, <clears throat> many scholars have argued that chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, are among the most difficult verses in all to understand in Samuel. The main point is pretty clear. David captures the ancient city of Jerusalem, which has been in the hands of the Canaanites. He captures it with his men, that is, his band of loyal mercenaries, who owe nothing to Israel or to Judah, but only to David. The captured city is now the city of David. Moreover, the city is in a good position defensively, happily located right in the middle between Israel and Judah. So it was situationally located for the best of the kingdom. Now, apparently, his men found a way to get into the city, but what about this lame the lame and the blind. Why are they saying that? They, say, they thought, that is the Jebusites, that this city is so impregnable that a lame and a blind person could be in control of the defense of Jerusalem and you still couldn't get in. Which causes David to see that and hear that in his ear as a taunt. You ever been taunted by anybody? You ever been uh, trash talked? That's exactly what they're doing. They're trash-talking David. David doesn't like it. He doesn't like it at all. So he sends his men some way up that water uh, spout tract, and they get in and take the city. Uh, about a month ago, I was touring a castle in Ireland. They're not too hard to find. They're everywhere. And this castle was built in what year, Pam? 900? 900 B.C. And we were going through a guided tour, and the man said, right there is a false staircase behind that wall. And he said, there's another false staircase behind that wall, and then two more, he points out, or she points out. She was a great tour guide, had a great Irish accent. And then she told us that when people were attacked in that castle, they would escape by going up a spiral staircase in all four of those corners, leaving the rest of the castle uninhabited. And when they got up to the top of the castle and the towers, they would boil water and oil and either boil, pour hot water all over them, scalding them, or hot oil all over the enemy trying to climb the stairs, French frying them. But I'm not sure how David's men got there, but by Yahweh's help they got there. Interestingly enough, you'll see that in the case of the Philistines, David will ask the Lord what to do in each battle, but in this battle he didn't ask anybody. 
Because I think David was ticked off about the way they addressed him and taunted him. But that phrase, lame and blind shall never be here, is interesting. Stick that away in your file, in your mind, because it's going to come up later, okay? And it comes up especially in Jesus inhabits Jerusalem, and he comes after who? The lame, the blind, the broken, the losers. You'll see that happen. Now, as we continue the text, we're in point number two, and so here we see something amazing happen. The establishment of David in Jerusalem is not an ending, but a beginning of Israel's life. The twin establishment of David and the concept of Zion uh, generate in Israel great possibilities for the future. The wonder of the Jerusalem establishment permits Israel to have a new theological conviction about what God will do in the days to come. It also, in a rather imaginative way, fulfills the Abrahamic covenant because now they're given the land. Now they have driven out all the enemies. The Jebusites were the last Canaanites, Canaanites that were driven out. Joshua didn't get them out. Now they're out. They're done. And the promises of a king coming from Abraham, of a seed coming from Abraham, of a land coming from Abraham are all established at this point in the narrative. And so this situation, because of that, Israel can dream and yearn for a new Jerusalem in which all of the old hates and alienations are overcome. In the old Jerusalem, in this text, the blind and the lame are excluded and despised. In the new Jerusalem, envisioned by the gospel, all are welcomed and the blind and the lame are transformed into full and welcome participants. Clearly, the hope of a new Jerusalem explodes beyond the historical realities of David and his kingdom. But as we keep going, as there usually is, Israel had wanted to be like the nations with a king. Israel has now achieved that status. It is therefore appropriate now to have other nations present in the story. And this guy named Hiram shows up. Now I want to tell you something about this text. It's not chronological, okay? This did not happen at the same time other things happened. The Bible is not always concerned with chronology as much as it is with events. And so Hiram's appearance is rather abrupt, but it makes a new beginning. He will eventually build a house for David and ultimately be involved in the construction of the temple. But he's a Gentile, and he has come flooding, as it were, the nations to Jerusalem to see the glory of God. Now, David, here's where the cracks begin to show. He starts acting like a king. And how does he act like a common king? He has concubines. Now, we've heard that David already had six, seven wives. Now he's got concubines. He also had many wives. But the word concubine was never used to refer to David until now. Now in the royal city, there's a new vocabulary, vocabulary for a new practice. David will fall as well into the process of sexual politics. 
And the list of his children is enlightening. We won't look too long. But David's power is expansive. But David makes a mistake here because it would be the same as you and I adopting for our own lifestyle certain standards of the world by virtue of living in the world. We make concessions, we harden our heart, and we start tolerating stuff in our life that shouldn't be in there. And David does it. Every other king had concubines, why not me? And so he does this to establish this was more like a badge of power and authority. And I think David forgot who he was. He was so caught up in all of this uh, moment that he forgot who he was and he started entertaining that. Um, sometimes one blemish can taint an otherwise excellent record or achievement. Martin Luther once praised his colleague, Justice Jonas, for having all the qualities of a good preacher, but added that people cannot forgive the good men for hawking and spitting so often. Hence, preaching may be excellent, but if it's too wet, it tends to dampen one's estimate of it, Luther said. In the same way, we may admit that the whole of David's kingship is admirable and his fidelity to Yahweh is fairly consistent. Yet we must not doctor the data. We must not spin it. We must not sweep away evidence that shows his faithfulness is less than complete or that his practices are often controlled by human culture rather than by God's law. So then we come to the concluding narrative in this chapter where we talk about victory. We have, number one, a leader who's to be a shepherd in place in Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God, on the hill of Zion. Zion is often used as a synonym. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But David's in place. We have, as it were, a land, Jerusalem, the city of David, uh, fulfilling elements of the Abrahamic covenant. And ultimately, the Sinai covenant will be replaced by a Zion Torah-like covenant in David's rule, and ultimately the new covenant, which we will see later in the prophets. But now, David decides to do battle. And who were the enemies? Well, the Philistines. We've met them before. When it says he meets them in the valley of Raphaim, that's the valley of the giants perhaps where he killed Goliath. But once more, David can do what Saul could not do. He puts an end to the Philistine threat. David is portrayed as a very faithful soldier who trusts the uh, guidance of Yahweh, and after dealing with Hiram and taking concubines, David's incident with the Philistines seems like a return to an older time. But the narrative does present two battles with the Philistines. David is utterly faithful in asking the old pre-king questions, and Yahweh gives him permission. He wins, and the idols are taken into the battle, thus connecting David to the success of the ark narrative we will see next week. But look at the second battle. I find it fascinating. I mean, he told them to go charge, take them, kill them, and they did, and they took their idols. But the second time, he had them go to the rear. 
the second battle. They go to the rear, and they're to stand among the balsam trees, and they're to wait till what? There's rustling in the leaves of the balsam trees, which signifies now it's time to charge. Do you know what was rustling those balsam leaves? It was the Lord of hosts, the angelic army, the holy warrior who shows up in the Old Testament over and over again, bringing justice and judgment upon the enemies of God. And so God went before him. God goes before him, his holy army of angels, angelic being, a host of them goes before the, through the trees, they hear it, then comes Israel down on them, they drive the Philistines out, and now everything, all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted for a great kingdom. But I want to leave you with two quick applications. First, on the application, I want to talk about the shepherd. The evidence, or excuse me, the reference of responsibility to David as the anointed one, the shepherd of Israel, becomes a significant theological theme. David is actually the only Israelite king ever referred to as shepherd in the historical books. God, however, frequently identify, is identified as our shepherd. To get the full significance of the metaphor for shepherd, we have to realize, and I've said that already, but the symbolic meaning of the shepherd draws on these aspects of ancient shepherds. Just as sheep were utterly dependent on shepherds, so God's people desperately need a shepherd. A shepherd who will care for them, who will lead them, who will feed them. And David is the ideal shepherd king. The lack of good shepherds in Israel led to expectations that God would send a king from David's line who will be a good shepherd. And that is the one who came, as I said earlier, the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for his sheep. He's referred to that great shepherd of the sheep. Peter calls him the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The metaphor of Christ as our shepherd reminds us of our utter dependence upon him. Just as sheep would never last long without a shepherd, we are utterly lost without Jesus. Therefore, the metaphor of shepherding is essential to our understanding of the nature of the relationship we have with him. We are his sheep. We are his people, the sheep of his hand. The metaphor of shepherding also has to do with how leaders exercise leadership in the church. But the second thing I want to talk about is Zion. Zion appears here for the first time in the Bible. Just as David becomes a symbol for the ideal kingship and a coming ideal anointed one, Zion is another theme that carries tremendous theological significance. Zion is often used as a synonym for the city of Jerusalem. And it literally refers to the historical city of Jerusalem. Symbolically, however, as the place where the temple was located, it signifies God's dwelling place. That's where God manifested his Shekinah glory was in the temple on Zion. Zion symbolizes the eschatological renewal of the world and of all creation. In contrast to Mount Sinai, 
Zion symbolizes the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus Christ. David captured the historical Zion, the place of the ancient temple, and the son of David has rescued the theological Zion, the church, and has made it his temple. As God dwelt in Zion, he now dwells in us as people. Paul writes that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And so this whole hope in the Bible for Zion, of returning to Mount Zion, is the whole hope of ultimately what we hope in. You know, they say what keeps a person young, I read an article by J.I. Packer, this was written right before he died, and he was talking about hope, and he says, the major thing I have discovered about hope in my life is you need a reason to get up in the morning. Everybody needs something to hope for or hope in. He said, but when you look at the Bible, you know, when you're young, you want to grow up. You want to develop life skills. You want to get through your education. You want to mature and grow into your own person. When you're a teenager, you can't wait to get out of the house and get on your own. And some go to college, some go to work. But you have that to look forward to. Then you have uh, uh, maybe a, a... ideally a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you want to ultimately marry ideally not in our culture but ideally and you have that to hope in then you have a family and you want to hope in children and then you have children and you want to hope in a blossoming career and in a career you hope to be able to not work so much that you ignore your family but there's always a reason to get up in the morning there's always something there but Packer says we've got to learn to shift our eyes from the temporal to the eternal we've got to look at the heavenly eschatological Zion where we will dwell forever and everything you're missing here, everything your heart aches for here, everything you yearn for as a human being here will become a reality there. That's your hope. There is no other. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text and how it speaks to us, how it not only addresses its time, but points to the end of all things, the consummation of all things, where we will receive a new temple. We will be the new temple. We will descend with Jesus from heaven. We will live, have a new living place in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be clothed with a new body. We will have uh, family uh, relationships with the people of God for all the ages. And what a day that we cannot even scratch the surface or anticipate what glory will truly be. But we know what disgrace is. We know what not glory is. Shame. We know what that is. But we look forward to the day when we all taste of glory. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as those who hunger and thirst for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.